We're back. He was one of the original broadcasting team of Edward R. Murrow in World War II, and we're privileged to be speaking with him today. Richard C. Hodlett. Bob Edwards talks about moves uh, in the 1980s to make TV news a profit center with the result that people like Walter Cronkite and you were sort of pushed aside. Well, what are your thoughts on the turn that television news has taken in the past couple decades? Well, what he was referring to is the fact that, that um, Don Hewitt unwittingly demonstrated to the, to, the, uh, to the powers that be, the executives, that uh, news which had always been a, a loss leader, which had always been what, the, what Paley and Stanton used to brag about in front of congressional committees, that news could be made to pay. And once it was shown in, on 60 Minutes that news could pay, news had to pay. And um, the, <laughs> what Murrow had warned against in his famous uh, talk to the radio news directors in Chicago, I think it was 19, 1958, which was long before 60 Minutes, that uh, corporate leadership uh, should consider the quality of, of the product and not, the, not concentrate on increasing the profit margin of the, of the uh, financial statements from year to year. Murrow was against, alas, what was the, is the nature and the essence of... of uh, uh, television broadcasting today, he was against the commercialization. Of course, there's a weak point to that because television or broadcast news, like any news, has got to pay its own way, has got to earn its living, because where else is it going to get the money to, to survive and to pay its, pay its help? Some governments uh, you know, subsidize their, their television, uh, their radio broadcasting in, in Europe, but uh, that, that's anathema in the United States. I mean, a free press could not be a press that um, accepted money from the government because accepting money meant that you also accepted influence. And so television broadcasting has to pay its way the way the, the written press has to pay its way through advertisements in, in the paper. And uh, But that has now been more and more, and the, 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 the trend has been to get the, the biggest audience, no matter no matter with what, right? And the no matter with what has uh, sort of spun down to being the the lower and lower and lowest common denominator, and uh, so we have now a sort of on the whole. I mean, there there are notable exceptions, and there are people who are who are trying to fight the good fight against uh, you know against odds. But what on the whole we have now is a. Uh, is a trivialization and a, 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 a sentimentalization of, of news and human interest stuff and features, even the big, you know, the 22-minute half-hour news broadcast, the network news broadcast, are half or more sort of features, some of which are elegantly done and, and, and are, you know, informative and the rest, and you can't fault them for that. The back of the book is, uh, has a presence in, in television news the way it has in Time magazine, but uh, it cuts into the news output. And so you've got an unlamented uh, former president of CBS News coined the phrase, the word infotainment, uh, to, you know, to, to describe what it was that was being peddled. And that, that is, it's not, it's not uniformly the case, and it's not always the case with everybody, but it's too often the case. Who do you turn to when, when you flip the television on for some news? Well, the BBC in the main, 
Okay. Um, which is, you know, like like an old-fashioned news broadcast. It's got news in it. <laughs> and uh, they occasionally have features, too. But there's a good feature has its place in news because, it you know, it can acquaint people who are not sort of driven to the news. It can awaken their, their interest and, and, and lead them to, to uh, follow it further. Um, but on the whole, it's, you know, it's a good old-fashioned hard news broadcast. Um, I then listened to one of the one of the three networks. They all do do a good job. Uh, they're all three serious three serious uh, anchor people, and uh, you know, I think if they had their way, their broadcasts would have a lot more news. Uh, the commercials now. I mean, we noted the other night, last night, that there are more com- there seem to be more commercials on some of these things than there is news. Yeah. But um, that's the way it is, and. Uh, the, of course, the, the Lehrer Report on, on PBS is excellent, and um, it, it, you know, you, you're not bothered with, these, with the news interruptions, and, and they, they can spin out a, a, a subject uh, you know, infinitely more and better than, than the networks can, because networks just simply don't have the time. Sure. So between the BBC, really, and, the, and PBS, um, one, can get, uh, one can get serious and informative uh, news broadcasts. Well, now, you went to National Public Radio after a long career at CBS. Do you find the spirit of the old Tiffany Network's alive and well over at NPR? Well, I've, I went to, to NPR really only as, as a contributor. I, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations at one point, I don't know, the late 80s, 88, 89, asked me if I'd uh, do a, a, a broadcast, which, I mean, the Council gets an awful lot of very interesting people to come and talk about, about different things and foreign affairs, you know, the American place in the world. Sure. And uh, they asked me if I would, if I would be interested in, in doing something, which we then called America and the World. And that was, that was carried then by NPR for, uh, I, I think I did it for, for six, about six years. Yeah. And um, that, was, that, that was my connection with NPR. I was never in NPR, and I, you know, but I was just a contributor. Uh, on this program a couple of weeks back, Daniel Schroll reminded us that in World War II, you members and Murrow's team were wearing military uniforms, clearly saw yourselves as being on the same team as our, uh, as our military. What do you say to those who complain the Pentagon's currently working too hard to control reporters dating back to the invasion of Grenada? Let me say, to start with our, our position, sure, we wore uniforms, but, you know, without any rank or badges of anything except, except identifying us as war correspondents. Mm-hmm. And uh, because what, what, what's the alternative going, going over in a, in a, in a blazer and, 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 uh, and uh, gray flannels? Or we, we were in there, we were slogging along sometimes with, you know, with the GIs, and, and we, it, was the, it was the working, it was the overalls, the working, the working uniform. So our position as correspondents in World War II was defined by no one lesser and no one better than Dwight Eisenhower who sent a circular around to all, the, all his commanding officers saying that he'd be meeting people who were accredited war correspondents. And he said these war correspondents should be given every help and allowed to speak to, to anyone they, you know, who would speak to them and uh, to, uh, to, because their function was to tell the people of their countries, and it wasn't just American correspondents, it was you know, a, a dozen different nationalities, tell the people of their countries how the war was being fought. Now, this was, you know, this, this was, after all, a, a sort of a blank, blanket license to go out and do it. And what it translated to, in fact, 
was that we were attached to the first army but being attached to the first army merely meant that we had an umbilical cord for transport and food and lodging and um, operated on our own and except for the for the censorship which was which was tactical and was only occasionally uh, a bit stupid uh, we had we had free run and we could go where we wanted and talk to people we wanted, go to division headquarters, go up to the front with the replacements. Uh, but we were only, at the First Army, we were only about a dozen correspondents. Yeah. What soured the, the Pentagon was the later the, uh, the Vietnam, where we were not, it was not a war, so we were not war correspondents. Which didn't matter because we were, we were, you know, we were sort of. I, I don't know. There was what, what the the nature of our attachment to the army was. Uh, I think we had sort of credentials identifying us as as uh, as uh, employees of CBS or the uh -huh. New York Times or what have you, and uh, we were we were then able to to fly all over the place. Uh, fly or drive or whatever uh, it was, there was there was again this complete freedom of action and some of the reporting was was spectacular of course some of the reporting was horrible such as me lie yeah. uh, but uh, we were free to go and report it was it, it was an adaptation a more modern adaptation of the of the, the situation in, in World War two but what the, the you know what was then reported put the and it was you know it was just literal factual reporting uh, put the army in, 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 in a bad light. The way, for instance, the, you know, not quite the same, but the, the, an, an analogy is this uh, Abu Ghraib prison business in, yes. in, in, in Iraq. This could not be censored out. For instance, the Milai stuff and the, and the bombing and the rest. The Pentagon had got the notion, a false notion, I might say, that the, the press um, revealing all the all the, the warts and hairs and the rest of it of, of this operation uh, were in in large measure responsible for its defeat, and that is simply not true. Uh, the uh, it was their it was their way out. The 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 war was the conceptualization yeah. of that war was faulty for various reasons. They certainly have scapegoated the media. Yeah, then that that was the idea, and uh, uh, that. That followed. Then uh, I think Panama was the was was it Panama the next big thing, and the Panama. The idea was how do you keep the press from covering from seeing what what's happening sure. and covering the war. Sure. So they invented the pool system, and they had a pool which was to go in and you know oh, to talk to everybody, but the pool in Panama was locked up in a warehouse and didn't see a thing, couldn't see a thing, and that was that was the way they wanted it. Uh, then came, I think, then came uh, Grenada, and uh, the Grenada they didn't take anybody, and the, right. the, the source of information was the was the Pentagon handout, so that one didn't have the slightest idea really of what was happening, and uh, the various odd things, the sort of collisions between this, the, uh, the, the 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 Navy and SEALs and the and the Army uh, uh, Special Forces. Uh, you know, com commotion and 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 uh, and, and mistakes, uh, which never one never heard about until later, and then came, of course, the the, the triumphal uh, appearance of the Pentagon in the in the uh, in the first uh, well in the in the Gulf War of 1991, 
where right. they had this, this further control, complete control, and and the, the, everybody lived, everybody who was there lived on on uh, on the army on on military handouts. Mm-hmm. A picture, these spectacular pictures, all the smart bombs that hit their mark, and the hundreds of dumb bombs that didn't, you know, <laughs> just, just simply didn't figure. And the notion that that war is commotion and war war is a fog and war is as a, a succession of of imponderables and unpredictables just didn't come through. This was an orchestrated thing, and every sort of the left wing and the right wing was around. At that point, I think they also had the escort officer who was always there when a correspondent spoke to anybody, to an officer, to a GI, to a tank, whatever. And uh, it was all to keep to keep the press in line. Well, that that was that was unacceptable. And when the when the uh, Iraq War started, they came upon what was actually a rather constructive and interesting idea of embedding the soldiers, so embedding correspondence with with military units. Of course, the problem with embedding, the good side of it was that you you got a sort of a, a laser beam. Uh, picture of a a given situation a tank moving up a road or moving into a city or whatever you sure. saw none of these of the, the sort of the side uh pictures uh but what you saw was genuine enough and the reports of the embedded the print correspondence uh were were censored to, to be sure the, the um but they too being embedded uh were just with with uh, you know with a particular unit Part of this is is not the is not the fault of the of the of the Pentagon, although that that's the way they wanted to rig it. But how else do you deal with a thousand correspondents uh, in a small field? I mean, sure. we had we we had maybe maybe there were a hundred correspondents in the whole of the European theater, from starting starting from from Rome through southern France to Paris to Belgium to the Siegfried Line, and so there was plenty of room to roam. But in in, uh, in in a, in a tiny in a, in a sort of postage stamp uh, theater of operations like like the Gulf, like Kuwait, and then and then slightly larger into into uh, Iraq, uh, you couldn't let them roam free. So the, the the embedding was was an interesting idea, and and it was a lot a lot sounder than 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 Panama and and Grenada. But uh, God forbid that there should be any other war. But um, in, in whatever other use, use of American forces there may be, uh, perhaps peacekeeping and the rest, they, they should think of something better. Uh, maybe maybe just limit the number of correspondents to the to the main to the main to the agencies to the main networks to the to the main newspapers to you know with enough magazine journalism and the rest to go on so that nobody can feel that that uh, they're being cut out. But you can't have a thousand people uh, falling all over sure. each other, looking, 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 looking for the the scoop. You know? Yeah. We're speaking with Richard C. Hodlett, former World War II correspondent for CBS Radio, whose report from the beaches of Normandy was the only one to reach American audiences on the day of the invasion. You mentioned earlier that standing standing arm's length away from Hitler and, and not finding him to be a charismatic figure, the world is endlessly fascinated by this man. How did he strike you on a personal level, being in the same room with him? Well, we, you know, we were standing on the airport together. Uh, he struck me as, you know, just an ordinary man. But, of course, you know, his he, he had by then been built up in stature to a sort of a superman. 
uh, which which he when then was in his public appearances and and in the treatment the the official treatment that he got, but he was just you know you you couldn't see that in him. Dr. Frank Stanton is still with us. He's, I guess, 93. He's, yeah. uh, he still makes appearances down in the studios named after him in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. If we were to interview Dr. Stanton, what, what, what should we ask him? Well, you know, he was there at the start of, of, uh, of radio news, and he then made the transition to television news. And you could ask him some of the things you've asked me. What about the commercialization? And, um, and what about uh, the, the, the present state? I, I, he might, I think, if he if he spoke freely, he'd, he'd be very interesting to interview. He's a, of course, he's a fascinating man. He's a, he's a, he's a, a really respectable character. I mean, yeah. And 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 uh, it'd be interesting to hear what he has to say about what the the path that that news has taken, broadcast news has taken, uh, in his time and since his time. Well, when we read your complimentary words on the jacket of the book by Bob Edwards, we hoped that we might be able to get to get you to say a few words to us, and happily, that's occurred. And we, we just we, <laughs> we can't, a few. can't yes, but we can't we can't thank you enough. The only question I could think of to ask to close would be like, what is the most memorable uh, moment of your career, which has spanned six decades? Well, I think the most I think the most interesting thing that ever happened to me was um, was in in Moscow, an interview with Maxim Litvinov. In the summer of 19, 1946, at okay. a time when when the foreign ministers Molotov and the three Western foreign ministers were deadlocked in Paris, I asked him what would happen if the three foreign ministers were to go to Molotov tomorrow and say, "Okay, Vyacheslav, we will give in. All we'll give you all the things you've been you've been demanding." What would happen? He said. Then you would be faced with the next series of demands. In other words, you know, you're you're up against a bunch here that uh, that you can't persuade, you can't win over, who have their own agenda, have their own standards, and playing their own game. And uh, that was that was, I mean, both both significant and and immensely interesting. Yes. And I, I, I can't resist, even though I said that was the last question, I can't resist asking one more. In the wake of uh, Ronald Reagan's passing, he's been, um, it's been said that, uh, that he ended the Cold War. And, and you, as Moscow correspondent, someone who followed uh, the news in Reagan's career, how do you respond to that? Well, uh, certainly he played a part, but the Cold War ended in the main because, um, because the Soviet regime was rotten to the core. And was just were just fallen apart, uh, and even if I mean Reagan certainly certainly did his best to to push it along, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev bring down this wall and, and all the rest of it. But if R- Ronald Reagan hadn't been president, uh, it, it would have it would have happened as it as it ha- roughly as it happened. Now that that's what we thought. <laughs> Well, Mr. Hotla, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been most informative. Uh, perhaps in a few months we might call you again. If that would, would that be all right? Sure, sure, a pleasure. Delighted. Thank, thank you. Thank you for your hospitality. All righty. Right on. Bye bye. I can't tell you how privileged I feel to have been able to have had a conversation with a legend of journalism, Richard C. Hodlett. 
Uh, Edward R. Murrow is, um, is, is truly a legend in journalism. We spoke with Bob Edwards about him a few weeks back, who's written a book, by the way, uh, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism, a book we can highly recommend to you. We spoke with Daniel Shore, another one of Murrow's boys, although there was a difference between the World War II Murrow's boys and the one that came after. Hotlet was one of the originals. He will be joining us on next week's program to not necessarily look back, but to look at the present and what's going on in the world right now. And uh, I can assure you he will have some interesting things to say about that, as he does about everything else he's touched upon. That's it for Radio Parallax this week. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And we will see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock. And among other things, as I say, we will continue our interesting discussion with Mr. Richard C. Hodlett. Stay tuned for Todd, I think. (laughs) Every time I say that, someone else is subbing for him. But stay tuned for whoever it is. I'm sure it'll be worth your while. Oh!